All right, guys, um, if you have a Bible, find the Old Testament book of Joshua. Today, we are ever so close to the finish line of our study through this great and immensely important Old Testament book. In this study in Joshua, we've been in it since May, and we're, we only have two more Sundays after, after this one. And uh, So Joshua 22 is where I need you to turn. Um, and with this chapter, we're coming to the final of four major sections in the book of Joshua. We looked at the third one all at once last week. We covered chapters 13 through 21. That was a chunk. For those of you who've been here, I hope I'm telling when I say this, I've told you enough times that you can say it in your sleep. It's good to be reminded if you're, you haven't been here. Uh, these, these, I said this is the four, beginning of the fourth of four major sections. What are those? Um, well, in Joshua, just to know where you, where you are in the book, uh, the first section of the book was chapters 1 through 5 that uh, told us of Israel's preparation to enter into the promised land. This, is, this would be the, the children and perhaps grandchildren of that first generation that had been you know, delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Though that generation died in the wilderness, including Moses, because of his disobedience. It's, it's that generation's children and grandchildren who are in view here now. And in chapters 1 through 5, they're preparing to go and, 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 and take the promised land. Uh, who you know, the, the Canaanites, the Amorites were dwelling there at that time. Then we saw the second section, which was chapters 6 through 12, which, uh, beginning with Jericho in chapter 6 and Ai two times in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and the conglomeration of kings and, and the rest of the... That's their, the, it's just battle after battle of their conquest to take the land. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of hard to read sometimes. It's pretty brutal. Um, but what we, what we tried to see over and over again is, is as hard as that is to read. It's not unjust. It's not, it, it really teaches you, one, this is, this is the historical, historical account of God's faithfulness to his promise that he made to Abraham as far back as Genesis 12 that he would bring his people into a good land of his promise. And this is him doing it. But what about all the fighting? What about all the, the, the well, that, that right there also shows you uh, in historical form just a demonstration of the long-suffering justice of God. Long-suffering. Because all the way back in Genesis 15, 6, God had talked about the sin and the wickedness of the Amorites living in that land. We're talking about Genesis. This is Joshua. Right, God had put up with a lot. We don't have to rehearse all the sins, but they included things like child sacrifice. It was a wicked, wicked place. And so these conquests going into the land are also part and parcel of God's own justice against them for their wickedness. It's not just some random holy war. All right, so then last week, uh, I mentioned we looked at the third section all at once. That was chapter Chapters uh, 13 through 21. And so after they had gone into the land and had, had mostly um, conquered all of it, mostly, um, they began to divide up that land between uh, the different tribes of Israel. And, um, and, and recall that also uh, since the first cha- chapter of Joshua, we were told of two and a half of those tribes, the the tribe of, of uh, Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, okay? Um, they, were, they were the guys that even in the books of Moses, they were like, hey, we like this land 
on this side of the Jordan River, we will go across and we'll help you guys move in. We'll help you fight the battles. You guys take that land, but after we're done helping you guys move in and, you know, uh, conquer the land, we're going to come back on this side. Our cows like the grass over here. So, um, yeah, so we, we, have, uh, we have the account of, uh, in that 13 to 21, is they're dividing up the, most of the land among the, most of those tribes, and then here we got these two and a half coming back. That's what we start with in chapter 22. Um, the fourth section, 22 to 24, um, begins with a focus on those two and a half tribes and their resettlement across the river. We're just going to be looking at one chapter today, and um, it's going to be, if you've been here, it'll be a nice and welcome change of pace after the last two weeks, looking at multiple chapters at a time. So we, our practice is to read the chapter, if possible, before we begin. Um, let God speak to us first in his word, and then we'll dive into it. It's pretty straightforward. It's an interesting chapter to me, so begin in verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. And you have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised to them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went into their tents. Now to the, half, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, uh, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses." And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And the people of Israel sent to, sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them from the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the Lord of God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion 
against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin of Pe- at Peor, from which, which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, mighty, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, Do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and you people of God. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, If this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest And the chiefs of the congregation and the heads of the families of Israel who were with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh uh, spoke, it was good in their eyes. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this that we just read is your holy, inerrant, inspired, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, uh, Lord, as we come to it, I think this, this story just feels so ancient to us, as a lot of these stories do in Joshua. They just 
feel so far removed from our daily life, would you please bridge that gap in our minds? Help us to, to, help us to see the truth. Give us eyes to see the truth here that we need to see. Give us minds to understand the truth that you would teach us here. Would you give us hearts to embrace and love the truth? And give us wills to obey whatever it is that you call us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach this passage, and please give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I mean, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty interesting to me, at least, and a simple story. Um, but there are a number of things we could take away from it. I'm, I'll be out, first one to admit, today might feel a little bit like popcorn. I, there's not like, to me, one just steady theme that can encompass a whole, I mean, you could. There's one main point. I think there's a lot of little things that we can see that are helpful for us to see. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're going to go. Again, the flow of the chapter is pretty simple. It kind of, you may have noticed this as we read it, it kind of divides up pretty clearly in four clear segments um, and each of those segments, from it almost seems like it's from a different perspective. And so I want to think through this chapter from those four different perspectives. I didn't know what to call each one, so I'm just telling you what perspective it's from, and then we'll go from there. So verses 1 through 9, we're going to see Joshua's perspective. Joshua's perspective, his perspective on what? On those two and a half tribes um, as he charges them and as he blesses them before they go on their merry way. Joshua's perspective, verses 1 through 9. Second, in verses 10 through 20, we're going to see the majority's perspective. The majority's perspective on what? On those two and a half tribes. After they build what the text calls an altar of imposing size, meaning a big one. Um, the majority's perspective on, that, on those two and a half tribes. Third, in verses 21 through 29, we're going to conversely see the minority's perspective. The minority's perspective on who? On the majority of the tribes. Um, those two and a half. How do those two and a half tribes see what, what's going on here? And their defense of their actions um, to those who had come out to them. Finally, bless you, whoever that was. Finally, in verses 30 to 34, the very end of the pa passage, we're going to see what I, I'll, just, I'll just call it the narrator's perspective the narrator's perspective, as he sort of recounts for us how it all shook out in the end. The chapters in this last section of Joshua, 22, 23, 24, um, they're all fairly similar. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed that 22, 23, and 24, they all begin with Joshua charging the people, calling a segment or all the people to himself and giving them some sort of address. 22, 23, and 24 each begin that way. Um, and I'll say all that to say there's, there's going to be a lot more in this, this chapter that we could bring out, um, but, but we're probably not because they will be picked up again in future chapters. So we'll address them then. So let's dive into the text and uh, start at the beginning and, and what we can learn from Joshua's perspective. Again, it's going to feel a little bit like um, popcorn points. <laughs> but... Um, like I said, just said, each, each one begins with a, an address from Joshua, and, and we see that here. Joshua knows that the conquests are mostly over. There's still some pockets of Canaanites and Amorites still in the land, but the, most of the fighting was done, um, and he, he wants to um, address this, these two and a half tribes before they go back to, across the river to the land of Gilead that they desire to settle in. 
And uh, his address to them runs from verses 1 through 9. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, you might notice that within that address, verses 7 through 9 simply recount uh, him sending them off and saying, hey, when you go, you go with many possessions, go with uh, clothes and, 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 and uh, the spoil from your enemies. Take this stuff with you when you go. It's, it's the same stuff that the other tribes had enjoyed when they moved into their new homes, right? That's verses 7 through 9. It's really in verses 2 through 6 that we find the meat of what Joshua wanted to communicate to those tribes before they left. Um, and there's just a couple of things that I want to take away and tease out of what Joshua said to them um, that I think are worth pointing out. First of all, notice how right off the bat in what Joshua says in verses 2 and 3, Joshua commends those two and a half tribes for their faithfulness. He commends, that's the first words out of his mouth. He commends those two and a half tribes for their faithfulness. Look at those Look at those two verses again, verses 2 and 3. He says, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Down to this day, you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And just notice the language he uses in those two verses um, to acknowledge them for what they had done. In verse 2, in verse two, you have kept, you have obeyed. In verse 3, you have not forsaken you have been careful to keep. And not only that he's acknowledging them for what they did, but notice how sweeping it is. He says in verse 2, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. And in verse 3, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day. Right? So he does. Joshua, in other words, does not hold anything back in his commendation of them. He doesn't hold anything back in acknowledging them for all that they had done, not just for being so faithful to the Lord in some general way. You've not turned aside. Thanks for coming to the tabernacle to offer your sacrifices today, but specifically in the matter of their commitment that they had made in the days of Moses to help the other tribes fight their battles, help them move into the land according to God's promise before they head back across the river and settle in that part of the land. You might remember if you were here, right out of the gate, right out of the gate in chapter 1, we, this would have been back in May that we looked at this, in chapter 1, as the people were in that first section preparing to go into the land, in chapter 1, very first chapter, Joshua calls these two and a half tribes together to say basically, hey, remember Remember the promise that you made to Moses and, by the way, to the Lord that you would help us fight and you would help us uh, fight these battles before you go home? I just need you to keep that promise because we're about to go in here and we need you guys. All right? And that's basically what he tells them. And it was right there in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the, these two and a half tribes answered Joshua just like their parents had answered Moses in Exodus 24. They say, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And they did. They did. And, the first, and so the first thing that Joshua does with them when the fighting was all over, before they go back across the river, is frankly to acknowledge the fact that they kept their commitment. Right? To Moses, to Joshua, and to the Lord. And they were instrumental in... Israel's ability to inherit the land, the very land that God had promised Abraham to give them. 
now. Notice also that what he says to them immediately after that in verse 4. He says, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. So what am I, why am I pointing that out? Because Joshua just as firmly and unmistakably gives glory and praise to the sovereign work of God for making this happen. Right? In keeping, he kept his promise to Abraham. He's not like he's saying, Reuben, Gad, half you tribe of men, you guys did everything. He's not saying that. He's saying God kept his promise. God gave us rest in this land, but we should acknowledge what Joshua is doing here, right? What's he doing? He knows that it was the Lord's doing that they were in the land, but here's what else he knows. God uses means. He uses means. The Lord, in other words, the Lord does not always work unilaterally, right? He often works through people to accomplish his sovereign ends. Yeah, he by his sovereign degree, decree made the walls of Jericho to fall down before anyone laid a finger on it, but they still had to go in and take the city. And he, yeah, he caused the people of Ai on the second attempt to go into a panic. Only, only the Lord could do that. But they still had to, to defeat the people. And so their faithfulness and their commitment deserves commendation as well. And quite frankly... It is, it is part of giving glory to God and acknowledge, by acknowledging and commending those through whom the Lord worked. Sometimes we can get so super spiritual that we feel that we shouldn't give praise to people but only to God or at the very least, we feel supremely awkward when somebody comes and thanks us for something and says, hey, I want to tell you how the Lord worked through you and you don't know how to respond. And certainly there is a heart posture that would be sinful. Like, you know, I, you know, I just want to acknowledge you for what you did. You're like, dang right. No, I mean, that would be, that would be sinful. Um, but it is entirely good and right to acknowledge both God for His sovereignty as well as those through whose faithfulness He worked. Which means, giving praise to God, unashamedly acknowledging people for their faithfulness, and humbly receiving the thanks of others when, at least in their viewpoint, they acknowledge us and thank us for what, how they see that they think that God used you for their good, right? Romans 13, 7 says, Pay respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We owe it not only to the Lord, but also to those through whom he has seen fit to work. Okay? Second thing, very much unlike that point, popcorn, Second thing I want to note quickly from Joshua's perspective is his emphasis on the necessity of holiness. The necessity of holiness. You can't miss that in verse 5. Read verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded you to love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments and cling to him. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And, and when you read that, you hear echoes of Deuteronomy 6, 
right? You shall love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways when you sit, when you rise. And there are two ways that biblically we need to think about this. First of all, it is absolutely true morally before the Lord our God. Um, scripture couldn't be clearer on that. It's a constant refrain in the Old Testament. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Just read Leviticus. So also in the New Testament. Jesus, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or the book of Hebrews, strive for the holiness, or some say sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Right? It's strong. Um, but second of all, we need to understand where are we in the Bible? Where are we in the Bible? What neighborhood are we in when we read it here? Okay? Because we need to recognize that here in Joshua, there is a second layer to it. Not only is it simply true for sinful man to be at peace with God that we must be holy before him, perfectly so, as Jesus said, but it is true here in a second sense for these Israelites as, as it pertains to their remaining blessed in the land that they just conquered. They were to, once now that they had conquered the land and God had given them rest in the land as he promised them, now they in this land at that time were to uh, walk in, in holiness and in obedience that he expected in order for them to remain blessed in that land. The, in, in the very law itself came the, the, the threat of exile out of the land if they did not do that. Right? Leviticus 26, 33. And I will scatter you among the nations. This is if they walked in disobedience. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. He will bring on them what they just brought on the Canaanites. And your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. That happened. Why is it important to recognize both of these layers? That it is, yes, it's true morally before God, but there's a second layer to it in this neighborhood of the Bible because it helps us to see the grace of the gospel. It is true that we must be holy as He is holy. It is also true that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect and that without holiness no one will see the Lord. But God in His grace has given us an historical example of our inability to do that, of our inability to provide the holiness that He requires. How did He provide that? Through requiring that very level of holiness for Israel just to remain in this physical land. Not heaven and hell, Canaan. Right? And, 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 it, and we saw uh, for them to, to stay there, they would have to walk in this kind of obedience that we all owe to the Lord. And we saw last week that they were already compromising on certain things in this land. And in Judges, the very next verse, it's really going to go off the rails. And a few books after that, after that you're going to actually see the people going into exile just like the Lord said, first under the Assyrians, then under the Babylonians. What is the whole purpose of that historical trajectory in the Old Testament? Why is it important to think about that? Um, 
to teach us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there's none good, not even one. That we're all deserving of the just consequences of our sins. Why is that good to know? So we can see Jesus clearly. Who He is and what He came to do. As we've mentioned before, this Old Testament promised land, this piece of real estate in, in Canaan, was not an end in itself. It was just a temporary picture pointing to a greater thing. And, 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 uh, and it's a picture of what is that greater thing? Jesus. Yeah, he gave them rest here, but it's a, it's a B-team rest. A-team rest was coming in Jesus, right? That, that, that uh, Jesus is the one who says, Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that it's in Jesus that that rest finally. Joshua didn't give it to him. Jesus gives it to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promised land. So when you read Joshua in verse 5, holding up a seemingly unattainable standard of righteousness, the biblical response to that is agree with it, right? Grieve over your own sin, and run to Jesus, right? Well, there's more to this chapter that we got to get to if we're ever going to get through it um, than merely the perspective of Joshua at the beginning. As we keep reading, the next perspective we encounter is that of the majority. And to make sense of this, you got to remember what happens in verse 10, which is what? Once the two and a half tribes had settled back across the, the, the river in Gilead, verse 10 says that they built an altar of imposing size. And... In fact, it was a. It says later in the, in the chapter. I'm I'm uh, buh, 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 I'm missing the particular verse, but it's it's it was a copy of the one at the. At the uh, at the tabernacle. And before we're giving given any in this chapter, before we are given any explanation from the people who built the thing, why they built it. Um, we're first given the reaction of the majority of tribes, to the west of the river in the promised land, which was what? They went nuts. Verse 12 says, When the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They picked their axes back up. Goodness. But if you keep reading, you get a sense of why the majority of the people reacted so violently to this. When they send a delegation uh, of people to those two and a half tribes, composed mainly of the chiefs of ten tribes, but heading the bunch of them, according to verse 13, was Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest. And if you are familiar with your Old Testament up to this point, when you read that, your thought is probably like, uh-oh, Why? Phineas is a pretty infamous guy, in a good way. Uh, how? Well, Numbers chapter 25. Sunday afternoon reading, just go ahead and read Numbers 25. When, the generate, the, when their parents, this, these guys, when their parents were out in the wilderness and they, they had been brought out of slavery in Egypt, there's this graphic incident in Numbers 25 when an Israelite man brought a Moabite woman out in the open in front of God and everybody into his tent to commit adultery with her 
in front of his family. Yeah. And Phineas, young Phineas, took a spear and went into that guy's tent and ran it through the both of them right in the middle of the act. And so, yeah. It's, it, is, it is this Phineas who is rolling up with the ten chiefs. And he is, he is speaking on behalf of the ten. And he says in verse 16, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day and rebelling against the Lord? Why did, he, why did they assume this? They weren't entirely without their reasons. I just mentioned the Numbers 25 thing with regard to, to Phineas, and that's precisely the reason that they reacted like this. We're not going there again. Um, and they, they even refer to Numbers 25 in verse 17 when he says, Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? That's Numbers 25. We've not yet even cleansed ourselves from that. We need Jesus. And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord. So we don't want to go there again. We hadn't even cleaned that up yet. And it's not just that event that caused them to assume that these two and a half tribes were up to no good. It's not just that their parents were capable of going astray, and we saw it in Peor. It's, it's that we're capable of it too. Because they also, in verse 20, if you're looking at it, they remind them not just what happened long ago in Numbers 25, but what happened just a few months ago in Joshua 7 with Achan. Of how he went, even when he went alone in, in, and went astray alone in disobedience, the consequences all the people suffered. And this is not only why they felt like they had reason to assume waywardness, what these, these two and a half tribes were up to with the building of this altar, it's why they reacted so violently. They, they felt like by building another altar, these two and a half tribes would begin offering sacrifice, their own sacrifices. And offering it here instead of the the tabernacle, both of them against the law. And once that started to happen, it's only a matter of time before you start worshiping other gods and, and idolatry. And if, if, if anything, their reaction, not just intense but swift to those two and a half tribes, shows us yet again how seriously we have to keep a watch over our own hearts and our own ways if we would walk in obedience to the Lord. That's a community effort, right? Hence the value of the church. We hold each other accountable. And we often see, often others see waywardness in us before we see it ourselves. What the perspective of the majority here shows us is that at least at this point in their history, there was a zeal for obedience. And it produced in them, it was produced in them by three things. One, by knowing the Word of God intimately. Because they, they, they remember Numbers 25. Two, by knowing their own story intimately. And three, by knowing each other intimately. They knew God's word, they knew themselves, and they were doing it together. Right? And that is no less true for us if we would have a zeal for obedience to the Lord and to walk in His, in His ways in a way that's pleasing to Him in my daily life and decisions. It won't happen apart from the Holy Spirit speaking to me and to us through the Scriptures. It won't happen apart from that. It won't happen apart from us giving ourselves enough silence and solitude to get to know ourselves and to know my own tendencies 
and by committing ourselves to a church of like-minded believers who were all committed to walking in the same direction together. And that brings us to the third perspective here. And when we realize, when we realize that what was actually going on at this altar, you realize that we almost had an example of an ancient cancel culture. The mob going in hard before they even really know what's going on. So let's think about it quickly, the perspective of the minority, real quickly. So we, we see this beginning in verse 21. And you have, you have to, to believe that as they were standing there, just admire, man, look at that altar. You know, just like, like um, that looks good, you know. This, this, this land needed an altar like that. We're not going to do anything with it, but it's, man, it looks just like the tabernacle. And then you look over here and like Phineas and the boys are coming. And they're like, what in the world? Wet their tunics. Um, and when Phineas and the boys get there and they brought this accusation against them, what do they do? They strongly defend their innocence. And, they, and they, 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 they call God as their witness that they were not turning away. They were not acting in rebellion. They did not build the altar to offer sacrifices on it, to which Phineas was probably the one, why in the world did you build it? It's an imposing size. Which probably is why all of us should just calm the heck down when dealing with each other. Misunderstandings easily happen, right? Perhaps the majority shouldn't have immediately jumped to the wrong conclusion, but perhaps the two and a half tribes could have done something other than build a big stinking altar. <laughs> On top of the fact that they were the ones who decided not to live in the land. Right? That's a little awkward to begin with. There's often fault on both sides. When we deal with each other, and it's why we should always give each other the benefit of the doubt. Right? That would have gone a long way here. Why? Because what, why did they build this huge altar? Because the two and a half tribes feared that in future generations, the majority would assume that, that because the two and a half lived east of the river, and, and, and you know that they weren't part of the people of God. So they built this, this to testify precisely otherwise. They said in verse 27, to, to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. The two and a half tribes understood sinful human nature and took steps to ensure they were bearing faithful witness to the Lord in future generations. This chapter is full of assumptions. The majority assuming the worst about the minority. The minority assuming the worst about the descendants of the majority. It's always best practice when we're holding each other accountable to come with the benefit of the doubt and with humble hearts. It goes a long way. That brings us finally and even more quickly to the narrator's perspective. And this is simply the, the last few verses of the chapter. The narrator records for us the outcome of this discussion, which fortunately was a good one. Phineas and the boys accepted what they said. They relate it to the majority who also accepted it, and they put down their weapons. And chapter, the chapter ends with the two and a half reaffirming the purpose of the altar that they had built, and they named it in the very last verse of the chapter. They, they says they named it witness because they said in verse 34, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And it ended well, and it honored the Lord. But this, you, if you're familiar with your Bible, I mean, if you didn't know anything beyond this point, you're like, sweet, that's great. But if you just, you know what's going to happen in just 
like in a couple of chapters. This positive ending sort of just sticks out like a sore thumb. Because we, when, when you see this against the backdrop of Israel's future, which we already have written down for us, it's, it's a reminder to us that faithfulness today does not guarantee faithfulness tomorrow. And hence, Jesus told us to take up our cross, how often? Daily. And follow him. That's what we got time for today. If, we'd, if we had left time, uh, I would just, you know, the, the, the questions I often uh, encourage you to ask, what did this chapter teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? Which is a lot. And what does it encourage us to do? which is also a lot. But as we, um, as we bring it to a close and move into the sanctuary for the next, next hour, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. There is so many riches in, in every syllable of your word. Lord, there's so much that you have to teach us about yourself in this passage, about ourselves here, and lead us to act in ways that honor the Lord and and, and bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray uh, that you would help what we learned here um, sit with us for a while and, uh, and t continue to teach us through it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.